Welcome to Real Personal Finance. I'm your host, Scott Frank, CFP, CFA charter holder, and founder of Stone Steps Financial. And I'm your host, James Canole, CFP, MBA, and owner of Root Financial Partners. The premise of our show is simple. Money can be confusing, but it doesn't have to be. Our goal is to answer real personal financial questions that we hear from our clients and our listeners. Each episode, we answer one personal financial question in a clear and understandable way. Because money is a tool. And when you understand the language of money, you can make better decisions to improve your financial life. Hi, James. Hey, Scott. Welcome back to another week. Thank you. Yeah, we've got another question. Another question. I love it. Yeah. This is uh, a longer question. It is. With all kinds of stuff to unpack, but we'll distill it Yeah, everyone. We will give it our, our best shot. Um, okay, so I'll, I'll dive in. Um, hi, my husband and I uh, will have a windfall year in 2021. Congratulations for your windfall. Um, we're good savers, low spenders, and are high income earners. We typically have about 190000 of income. In addition, um, I have a side hustle that brings in 50000 annually. And... We recently sold our house and received bonuses from work, and we'll have about a hundred thousand extra post tax this year. Um, currently, we have about two hundred thirty thousand invested in the stock market. We have one hundred forty eight thousand in cash. Um, we the cash is our six month emergency fund with the remaining one year of my husband's MBA tuition. Once he's done with his MBA, we should have thirty thousand remaining that we'll put towards a house. We're currently renting. Um, uh, we'll buy a car. We don't have one currently and maybe towards stocks too. Um, our goal is in the next two years to start trying for a family. At that point, my husband will continue to work and I will focus on our family and continue my side hustle. My husband has no goals of retiring before 50. I would love your input into how to appropriately allocate our assets I have a high risk tolerance with no desire to invest in bonds. I'm looking at an asset allocation of 60% the stock market, 20% cash, 10% international, and 10% small cap value. Our goal for our assets is to sit and let them grow. We're never going to pull out uh, the money early and feel comfortable with riding the market. Would you advise a different allocation given our circumstances? We should have a net worth of about a half million dollars by the end of 2021. Right. Yeah. Ooh, a lot to like unpack very, there. That was a very dramatic reading. Was it dramatic? Methodical. I was trying to do M- like NPR. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. A little so bit. There's something going on there. I I don't like know, did it work? We, yeah. We just celebrated our 100th episode. Maybe the next 100 will be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, let's do the NPR version. No, let's do So uh, yes. a, a lot to unpack, as we mentioned. Yeah. There it, is. The crux of it is how should we invest? Mm-hmm. We've got most of our money in the S&P 500 and then a good chunk in cash. And the end question is, what should we do with it? Yeah. I think you and I look at that and say, gosh, good question. Before getting to that, there's so much that we'd want to unpack. Totally. Everything from cash flow. Okay, you're good at earners. You have a side hustle. There's mm-hmm. bonuses. You sold a house. How do you allocate to different goals? You're talking about long-term goals, buying a home, going back to get an MBA, buying a car. Mm-hmm. And then there's the investing piece. Yeah. So we'll, we'll set aside some of the things that we probably want to go through with clients if they're asked us the same question because it'd be a little bit more 
drawn out process. Yes. But where where would you start with this? If someone came to you or if this listener comes to you and says, okay, what should I do with the investments I have that right now are split between an S&P 500 fund and cash? How do I even start to think about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I actually think that before we start diving into the investments, let's let's look, let's chat about cash flow. Yes. Yeah. Good place to start. Yeah. So they've got income coming in. What do you want to know about cash flow? Uh, what's coming in and what do you spend in a month? Yes. So yeah. just because money's coming in, you're considered high end earners. Mm-hmm. Even said they're 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 good savers. I think not not huge spenders. It sounds like right. So income's coming in, cash flow's coming in, but to your point, it maybe isn't going to be that way forever. Right. One of them's going back to get an MBA. One of them's going to maybe home, stay home, or focus on the side hustle. Sounds like that's happening now. Sounds like um, husbands at school now. Sounds like they might be both working jobs while they're doing that with a side hustle going on as well. Mm-hmm. Obviously, they're they're really investing a lot of time into themselves and to growing businesses, which is really cool to see. The question for me would be, what's that look like when we do shift a year or two down the line? Mm-hmm. We're talking about maybe buying a home. We're talking about maybe adding a car payment. We're talking about having kids, mm-hmm. um, which is awesome, but that's going to change the amount of excess time we have for investing in other parts of our lives. It's a refocus at that point. So how do we just, what's coming up for you guys in the future? What What's considered good earnings now? And what's the excess that we have? And then look at where we go put the excess and why. Right. Right. Yeah, I, th- I think so. Because at the end of the day, we want to know how are we going to pay for our expenses? Mm-hmm. And at this point, it seems like it's no problem paying for them from income. Mm-hmm. They've got the income to do that. But as some of these transitions happen, is there still going to be sufficient income to cover expenses? If so, great. Th- then let's let's talk about how does that tie into your investments or savings? If not, if there's any point where okay, we might need to take from savings or we won't have the income to fully support everything, through some of these key transitions, well, that impacts the savings and what you do with them. Yeah. You might need to have some available. Yeah. Uh, is there anything else you would want to know from the cash flow standpoint or just kind of getting a sense of is income sufficient to cover everything and then some, or will there be any points at which that's not the case? Well, I think it's kind of to the point you're speaking of. It's the it's the cash flow and what's coming up with cash flow then ties into to me, it ties into their balance sheet where are these assets? So we're obviously, we're building assets. What's getting built in retirement accounts? What's getting built in taxable money? What's sitting in cash? Because different pools of money can do different things for us for different reasons, Mm -hmm. right? So if we're saving money for retirement accounts, we probably don't want to go touch those ideally now until we're 72, right? So really that, that can, there can be a case to be made for putting that very aggressively into the stock market. If you have a need for money in the nearer term, um, for like buying that house in a couple of years or using some of the funds for the down, down payment on a car, maybe just buying a car outright, depending on how you want to look at things and what you want to have for flexibility as you start a family, that kind of changes what we do with these funds. Mm-hmm. I don't know that answer. Yeah. And I think is one of the things we'd probably want to look at is how do you build the foundations of making sure that you have everything covered mm-hmm. so that you can invest. And I think the foundations we're talking about is at a minimum, just to jump right into it, everyone should have an emergency fund. Yeah, which I think they'd already alluded to. They already have. They have that. They're feeling good about that. Yeah. And one thing they said is is they have the emergency fund, but I think also the money for MBA is in there, maybe some money for down payment, Mm -hmm. money for other things. Mm -hmm. 
what I like to think through, and I know everyone's a little bit different, is I, I like to have literal separate accounts for each purpose I'm putting money away for. Yeah. So I would have a separate emergency fund account. There'd be nothing else in it except for the emergency fund. Mm-hmm. Then I would have a separate account for going back to school or again, the MBA. Yes. Then I might think about a car fund or a house fund or funds like that. And the, the reason for that is right now everything's in cash. Yes. Maybe that's the best thing for it. But we may look at those different goals and think, okay, maybe everything doesn't need to be in cash. Mm-hmm. So for example, emergency fund, that should be in cash. You don't mm-hmm. want to invest that. Think of that as insurance. Don't think of that as investment. That's just there in case you need it. Mm-hmm. Uh MBA. If you're going back to school and you need those funds now or very shortly, probably keep those in cash. Definitely keep those in cash. Mm-hmm. But say, for example, they didn't want to buy a home for 10 years. I know they didn't say that, but let's just say, for example, they did. Right. Well, instead of just lumping that into your emergency fund, if you looked at that as a separate account, you could identify that, okay, we don't need these funds for 10 years. Mm-hmm. We don't need to keep these funds in cash. We can now think about investing this. We can now think about this money working for us because we've got a time horizon that will allow for that. Yeah. So by having some more distinction between what the the purpose of each dollar is for, you can tailor the approach of how to invest or not invest it. Yeah. The the other thing that that does, I I fully agree with you. Another thing that it helps with is it gets the, for the, the, the couple, it gets you guys on the same page and it also gamifies this for you. You see that you have six months of cash sitting as cash. So especially if, if someone in the family maybe has a scarcity mindset and the other has an abundance mindset, one's like, oh, we're optimistic. We're always going to grow everything. We're always going to be okay. You might be okay having like a month of cash and not worrying right. about it where your partner needs to see that six months there and stable. Mm-hmm. And if you blend that in with all other things, you can quickly spend through it. Or you, you basically, you do some mental math that doesn't work out well. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. We're like, no, no, that's six. That's that's up here. It's at that online savings account online, and and we only bring it in when something really emergent happens, and we know what those things are together. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of that. I am too. And you know how how many people have ever had? Oh wow, I've got I've got a good amount in my savings account, but then a couple of Venmo transactions clear, and then a credit card payment goes through, and then a mortgage payment goes through, and you're at zero. You think how did that happen? I thought right. I thought I was good here. Yeah, where'd it go? And then a few things happen, and next thing you know, it's gone. Absolutely. Well, well, this is that on a bigger scale of, oh, we got all this money here, but when you actually itemize what it's all for, it gives you a lot of clarity into what are you on track for with school, with car, with emergency fund, with house, and what areas do you maybe need to focus on? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, To me, the next benefit on top of that is these goals or those different accounts, Mm -hmm. emergency fund, college, car, home, et cetera. Mm Mm-hmm. They're kind of accounts that you don't just keep saving to indefinitely. Right. You kind of hit a threshold where once you're once you saved enough for college, you you stop. Yep. You have enough to go back to school. Once you saved enough for your car, you stop. You have enough to purchase that car. Mm-hmm. So once you've filled those up, then you can really get to the next phase of this, which is really where the question's coming in: is how should I allocate some of my investments? Because right. Then you can start to think long term and not have to worry about using some of those funds for short term goals. Yep. Agreed. Where would you go from there? How would how do you think about that next? Yeah, well, so my assumption is that the investments we're talking about are taxable investments. Um, but I think it's important to look at you know every investment should have its own own goal, uh, and then and then look at what allocation you set. Um, one of the things you know when we look back on what was the the overall chat, 
It was that they'd love their input on the asset allocation. They have a high risk tolerance and no desire to invest in bonds. And and I would actually, I think that we should touch on that. We should touch on it in two ways. One is let's just look at um, how people can invest in the stock market. And then let's look at why people might want to invest in bonds. Um, ultimately, the choice is always up to the individual investor. Right. Does that sound like a good framework? That sounds great. Okay. So, you know, if we just look at the stock market now, as of the last end of the last quarter, so end of March, um, if you were to go look at the entire global stock market, the United States stock market makes up 57% of the global market. The um, international developed markets, so that'd be things like, um, so like you might hear the term IFA uh, every once in a while is something you might hear. Um, which is basically so, it, but think of countries like the United Kingdom, Japan, um, you know, European countries, places like that. Those those markets make up about thirty percent of the global market, and then you have what's called emerging markets. Emerging markets are like China, Brazil, India, uh, and the like. Mm-hmm. And that's important to know because people hear stock market and they just immediately equate it with Dow Jones or S and P five hundred, right? Which the S and P five hundred is only. That's the 500 largest companies in the United States, but you know there's really like you, you, there's a different company called Russell, which has something called the Russell 3000, which encapsulates pretty well the U.S. stock market. Mm-hmm. Like there's going to be some companies that aren't in there, but the majority are. Um, so if, if you take take like the Russell 3000 between large companies and small companies, about 90 percent. Of the of the companies, you know, large cap companies make up ninety percent of the market. Meaning that, like, what that means is, like, um, Apple is like, you know, a one point what one point six trillion dollar company, something like that. I mean, I'd, I'd have yeah. to go look at the exact number today. Don't quote. I'm, I'm I could easily be wrong on the point, whatever. But it's a massive company, right? Where like, um, I was looking at a ticker change the other day, and it was like. Sonos, I think, was like a $5 billion company. Mm-hmm. Well, huge difference between those two, right? So one's going to be in the mega cap, large cap space, one of the biggest. And Sonos is probably a small company. You know, there's everything in between. When you look at the US stock market of those 3,000 companies, 90% of the market size is made up by these really big companies. And then there's a whole bunch of really small companies that make up only 10% of the market. Yeah. And so one of the questions you can ask yourself in the US, international and emerging markets is you get to actually ask yourself two big questions. One is, do I want to allocate to the global market the way that just the markets are allocated now? So that'd be like 57 US, 30 international, 13 emerging market. Or do I want to put some tilt on that for some reason? Something that often people do, um, we see it and it's just, it's a, it's a, a lot of times we call them like behavioral biases. Um, we'll see that people will put like what's called a homeward bias on their portfolio. And that means they'll invest more in their home country than they will in other countries. Mm-hmm. So that's something we can see pretty often. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think that's one point I want to make. And then the other point I'd want to make, and I want to hear your your point too, James, is you get to kind of choose. If you just own the Russell 3000, you're choosing to own everything and you just want to own more of the big companies and less of the small companies because that's how the market's made. That's how it stacks up. And one of the questions you can ask yourself is, do you want to tilt to own a little bit more of small than large? Well, one way you could do that would be like own a Russell 3000 fund or something like that, but then you'd want to add 
another fund that would have some smaller stocks in it mm-hmm. um, so that you'd increase the weighting to smaller stocks over large stocks. And that's just a choice that you have to decide what's right for you. Right. Right. Yeah. And so th- how this pertains to the listener question, of course, and think I- I'm glad you brought that up because 10 different people could say stock market and all mean 10 different things. Totally. There's not one single stock market and everyone's usually referencing the S&P 500 when they're talking about it. Yes. Just because that's what's quoted most often in financial media and kind of a decent benchmark of how a U.S. stock's doing. But that is not the stock market. It's not the only stock market. So starting yes. with that breakdown is helpful because as, as this listener is asking, okay, should I do 60% in the S&P 500, which is U.S. big companies, 10% in international companies, and 10% in small cap value companies, and 20% cash? Sure. It's, it's not going to evenly line up with the allocation of this total global stock market just as it is. But like you're saying, you, you could customize this to however you want it. Would it be perfectly diversified as kind of as you would expect a globally diversified index to be? No, it wouldn't. It yeah. would be overweight US, overweight large companies. Uh, maybe not even, I guess, because there's a the small cap stock, but overweight US certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, that, that is kind of up to the individual to work through. Now, if, if you want to hear our more thorough approach towards investing and the approach Scott and I would actually take with clients, listen to the Better Investor series we did, which is episode 71, 72, 73. We, we break this down in a lot more detail. But in general, the good starting point is understanding how much of the companies that we can invest in even are here in the US and how much of the companies we can invest in are in developed international companies and how much are in developed emerging market countries. And then how much do we even want in the stock market versus things like cash and bonds, mm-hmm. which is the second piece of this. Yeah. Um, the, the comment that the listener gave or part of the question says, I would love your input on how to appropriately allocate our assets. I have a high risk tolerance. I have no desire to invest in bonds. Perfectly fine. Um, high risk tolerance is going to be mean more money in stocks, less yeah. money in bonds, but also less money in cash. Yeah. Uh, the the reason that Scott and I started with that exercise of how do you make sure your emergency fund is fully funded first? How do you make sure you have cash set aside for some of those short-term goals first? Things like uh, going back and getting an MBA, car, home, et cetera, is so that you do have cash on hand for those things. If that's the case, and this is money you truly don't need for a long time, to, to us, if, I, if you don't want to invest in bonds, then you would almost certainly not want to invest in cash, is, is my perspective. And on a scale of one to 10, if stocks are say a eight, nine or 10, mm-hmm. cash is a zero or a one, yeah. bonds are probably a, a three or a four. So it's, it's almost like you're willing to do the extreme most aggressive and extreme most conservative, but what's the hindrance on the, that middle ground, that bond piece? Yeah. That'd be something I would want to work through. Mm-hmm. Not saying I love bonds for long-term investing, but it can serve a purpose. Uh, well, I actually think, I think of it through a slightly different lens, I think. I, I, similar lens, but slightly, slightly different view maybe. And that's just the idea that, you know, you're building a life here where you're going to go grow. You want resiliency in your life. And so while, yes, we want to maximize the return of the stock market, absolutely, that's, that's we want to do that. We also, in a sense, bonds can act as a backup to your backup. So you have your emergency fund, um, and and you know, life really really gets raucous for a moment, and you guys and, and you as a family go through that. 
Well, if the moment that that happens, the stock market's also tanking. Now you have, and you need more funds. Now you have to go dive into your stock funds, which have, have are discounted now because the stock market's gone down a lot. And now it makes it even harder for you to get ahead. Whereas if you kept some percentage of your overall portfolio in stocks and another portion in bonds, say you did like a, I don't know, 70, 30 allocation or something mm-hmm. like that. Well, now, you know, of a hundred thousand invested, 70% in the stock market, 70 grand's invested, 30 K sitting in, in, in bonds. The bonds aren't there to earn you a bunch of money. They're really there to do two things. In my opinion, one is to act as a backup to your backup in your life, to have an ex, an, another source of liquidity if you need it. Um, so that in that moment you're okay. Mm-hmm. Cause if the stock market does go down a bunch, the bonds Really, if they're designed appropriately, if you're not jumping into things that are are more dangerous, like um, junk bonds and things like that, if you're really holding like high end stuff, it really shouldn't move around all that much on you. And so then it provides a kind of a bastion, a safe place to go do something with. The other side of that is if if you don't need those funds, if everything's going great for you, um, and the stock market is tanking, well, then you're going to do what's called rebalancing. So you're going to say, hey, I want to have a 70%, 30% allocation. And um, if the stock market falls to a point where the balance, you know, let's say I get to a 50-50 allocation, well, then I'm going to take a good chunk of my bonds in that moment, sell them, and I'm going to go buy stocks while the stock market's on sale. Mm -hmm. So it it allows you to, yes, if you look over the historical period of 30 plus years, if you never make a mistake and you always stay invested and you never need to go touch the funds, the 100% stock investment should be the winner. But having a, a some type of an allocation where you allow for rebalancing and it provides you more flexibility and resiliency on your balance sheet overall, that can actually be really helpful to get through some really tough times in life. Yeah. To, to, and, and absolutely another way of approaching it. Yeah, I, so that that's where kind of understanding what what's more important to you and mm-hmm. yourself as an investor and what what is your comfort level with that is important because to me I hear that and say I would rather just beef up my emergency fund even more mm-hmm. and go full throttle the investments not because I'm super uh you know I don't be risk not, what's the opposite risk averse just risk tolerant risk tolerant yeah. <laughs> that's how that works um, not because I want to just go gamble all my money but to me investing for the long term is about minimizing the risk of lost purchasing power. So mm-hmm. I want to offset that risk. Mm-hmm. So understanding yourself as an investor because 100% stocks is not easy to deal with a lot of the time. Yep. So having some money in bonds to rebalance or to access if needed or just to smooth out the ride a little bit, there's benefits, but there's there's kind of trade-offs to every scenario. Um I think both of us though would look at that 20% in cash they're talking about. Mm-hmm. And not say don't do it, but just say what is the true reason you don't want bonds there? You know, could could some of that 20% allocation of cash be in bonds to at least get a little bit of interest? Yep. As opposed to just, just being in cash if your cash needs were covered through your emergency fund and everything else we talked about. Exactly. I think we're basically saying the same thing. <laughs> just through slightly different just lenses. in circles at this point. Trying yeah. to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, but I think the, the thing that it keeps coming back to for me is when you look at the balance sheet overall. How much liquidity do you want to have to feel comfortable for just level one of life? And then imagine the worst of worst case scenarios and then ask yourself, well, where do I keep a little bit more of liquidity ready and available? Mm -hmm. And liquidity in this instance can kind of come twofold. One version of it is it's just, it's in a taxable account. So I easily have access to it. Um, And then the second component of that probably is that it's in a bond type investment or Mm -hmm. cash. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, 
mm-hmm. we just talked kind of at nauseum about the the high how long along that spectrum you want to go from being in cash to earning nothing to having some bonds yeah and like i said we in order to not make each episode successfully longer and longer and longer as we introduce more concepts it's episode referencing those episodes yeah 72 73 yeah 74 about we talked just about this thing in particular and we'll point you back to that to take a deeper dive so that we don't uh run every episode as five six seven eight hour episodes absolutely yeah what's that what's that podcast hardcore history yeah i don't know one of those Uh -uh. dan crown's hardcore history it's like five hours or six hours whoa super interesting i got through i think an hour of one and just i didn't and then the drive was over (laughs) but you couldn't listen our format isn't suited to that i don't think no but i think to me anytime i hear someone want to go all in on equities i just want to be really really mindful about what's coming up for you in your in the next couple of years and making sure that you have enough liquidity and enough of a foundation so that you don't find yourself having to sell mm-hmm. during that downturn, mm-hmm. right? I think yeah. that's kind of the key, the key crux that I come back to. If you have the liquidity for it and you, you don't need this, you don't need to touch it for 20 plus years, I think that's a great thing to go right. to. Well, and, that, and, and you made a critical assumption at the beginning that, that I, I think is probably true. You said you're assuming all this is in a brokerage account. Yeah. Not in a 401k or IRA or right. some type of an account where you, you could access it but even more reason not to before 59 and a half because of penalties. Exactly. Right. And then like, yeah, if you're in your twenties and you know, you can go whole hog on like all in on equities and dollar cost averaging on a monthly basis for every time that paycheck comes. Great. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, uh, definitely. And, and you know, another thing we'll add on to this is we're kind of just grazing the surface with this question. Yeah. There's income, cash flow, expenses, long-term plan. There, there's so much to this question that, we didn't even fully address because we no. want to focus on the crux of the issue. This, in our opinion, would be one of those things where does it make sense to have someone guide you through this? Yeah. Maybe we, we did a whole episode on when does it make sense to hire a financial planner? Um, episode 94. So right. just want to say we can't fully address everything on here. Um, but I hope that was helpful to address the most important part of the question. And unless Scott has anything else to add, no, he's that's shaking it. his head. No. Yeah. Then, then that's it. Yeah. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks, James. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Real Personal Finance Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe and let us know by leaving a five-star review. And if you have a question that you'd like for us to answer, then head over to the Real Personal Finance website at realpersonalfinance.co. And there's a section on the bottom of each page there where you can submit your question for us to answer in a future episode. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon for a basis for investment decision. This podcast is not engaged in rendering legal, financial, or other professional services.